Welcome to the Hills Baptist Podcast. We're so glad you're joining us as we see Jesus glorified, lives transformed, and hope revealed in the Adelaide Hills and beyond. We hope you enjoy this message. I'm reading from James 1. James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt. Because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Believers in humble circumstance ought to take pride in their high position. But the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test of time, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of the heavenly light, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be kind of might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. Amen. Welcome. You've already been sitting for an hour, so why don't you turn to the person next to you and say, let's get wise. Awesome. (laughs) So tonight we're starting a new series in the book of James. We've called it The Way of Wisdom. Um, A lot of people consider the book of James to be kind of the New Testament version of, of Proverbs in some ways. It's sort of the New Testament's wisdom literature where we have James, the brother of Jesus, writing to Christians who are persecuted, who are scattered all over the Roman Empire and giving them encouragement, challenge, rebuke, exhortation and kind of giving them wisdom in how to live out the things that Jesus taught. He's writing to people that are very familiar with trials. He's writing to people that are very familiar with persecution and with suffering. For a Jew, 
to become a Christian meant a great change in their social position. It could mean a loss of business. It could mean a loss of status. It could mean a loss of life. So the people that he's writing to know the cost that it takes to follow Jesus. I think in a way that some of us maybe haven't really had to face. It's important that we know that as we sort of start digging into what James is saying. Is anyone here a Star Wars fan? Okay, good. Twelve of you will get the reference. The rest of you can play along. Um, Star Wars is one of my favourite franchises and one of the best, worst movies in the franchise is the second one. Well, chronologically, not the second one that was released, the second one in chronological order, Attack of the Clones. And there's this one scene that I first saw in the cinema when I was about 10 years old um, and there's this quote that's stuck with me ever since and it's not, I don't like sand. (laughs) Obi-Wan Kenobi, who's like Star Wars Jesus, kind of, (laughs) is speaking to his six-limbed alien friend, Dexter. And Dexter is this kind of street-smart, soul-of-the-earth, wise alien who kind of knows everything about everything. And Obi-Wan Kenobi, just bear with me, he's trying to find out the origin of a particular type of space dart that someone had been shot with. And he's lamenting to his friend Dex that the Jedi don't have the knowledge that it takes to work out where this thing came from. And his friend Dex, with a wry smile, says that a Jedi should know the difference between knowledge and wisdom. I remember as a 10-year-old, I thought that sounded cool. I didn't really know what it meant. I'm still trying to work out, I think, what it really means. But this idea of knowledge and wisdom as kind of things that go hand in hand, but that they're also kind of pitted against each other a little bit. Knowledge, I think, is knowing about how the world works, whereas wisdom, we could say, is knowing the one who makes it work. Knowledge is being able to quote the Bible, but wisdom is knowing the one who wrote it. Knowledge is knowing about God, whereas wisdom comes from knowing God. There's a big difference between those two things. Wisdom, by definition, I looked it up, comes from experience. So I see the irony of myself, a 31-year-old man, with some life experience, but certainly not an exhaustive life experience, standing up here and teaching you about wisdom. I'm trusting that the Holy Spirit who lives in me, who also lives in you, will take what I say and take the words of Scripture and help make us all wise together. Why don't you stand with me? We're going to pray. The message I'm talking about tonight, it's been a wrestle to put together. And I'm going to touch on some things that are tricky for us and have been tricky to wrestle with myself. And so I want you to stand with me and pray. And we're going to believe together that God's going to speak to us. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you that it brings life. Thank you that it brings us into your life, which is sometimes different to what we think it should be. Lord Jesus, I pray that as I speak tonight, 
as we'll listen to your voice, that you would guide us into truth, you would guide us into wisdom, you would show us more of your incredible love and that you would bring us closer to you and closer to one another. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Chloe, for reading the passage tonight. And we saw in the passage that James mentions trials. And he talks about trials and he also talks about temptations. He sort of talks about these two different things. And the trial is the thing that is external to us that happens to us. Whereas the temptation is the thing that is in us, that comes out of us. He's talking about trials that shake our faith or internal temptations to sin or to put our trust in something other than Christ. So I'm going to start by sort of painting a picture of what those things are, sort of trying to define them in a way. And then together we'll wrestle with what we do with these things. What do we do with the trial that comes our way? And what do we do with the temptations inside of us? And what does the word ask us to do with them? So we'll start by looking at the external trial. And for the early Christians, for the people that this letter is written to, persecution for their religious belief was something that they faced every single day. In fact, for approximately 360 million Christians in the world It's something that they face every day, the possibility of persecution. So that's approximately, if you want to think about it like this, that's 14 times the population of Australia is the amount of Christians that live in a place where religious persecution is a daily reality. It's It's a lot of people. Conservative estimates put the number of Christians killed for their faith at around 5,500 a year. And high-level estimates put that number at more like 90,000. So somewhere between five and a half and 90,000 Christians die each year because they believe in Jesus. Most of these deaths are not recorded because they happen in places where killing a Christian is not really a noteworthy thing and certainly not something we want to advertise. Christians represent the most persecuted people on the face of of the planet. Every die, every day, people die for their faith in Christ. And this is often in brutal circumstances. And it's into this persecutor reality that James writes. So he writes to people for whom this is their day by day. And the reason I share all that with us is to remind us that this is a reality that our brothers and sisters face every day just because They believe in Jesus. So what do you say to a Christian for whom this is is their reality? Well, James says this, and it's very, I think, strange and curious, and maybe not what we would say. But he says this, consider it pure joy. (laughs) Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, Whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. 
I think the essence of this is to say your trial, the thing that is happening to you from outside of you, the death that you've seen, the persecution you've seen, it means something. It's not for nothing. It's doing something. The persecution that you're experiencing for your belief in Jesus actually produces something in you. It's not for nothing. I think the essence of this is it's hope. And this word testing in verse 3, it refers to uh, the refining process that they would put metals through so gold and silver they would heat it to an extreme heat to get rid of the the extra alloys and the metals they didn't want out of the gold to be left with a pure refined complete product and so that's what James is saying this testing this purifying this extreme temperature moment that you're going through it's doing something in you it's changing you It's getting rid of the stuff you don't need and creating in you a pure faith. In verse 4, he says, Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So the full effect of this perseverance, of this trial, is maturity, is completion. And we can't actually achieve that, but we're clothed in it by Christ. Because Christ is the only one to have endured and withstood and overcome the ultimate trial that is death. And through him and through his great grace, we can walk in that with him. So how do we who are not facing daily religious persecution respond to this? We might look at the circumstances of our life. We might look at the things that have happened to us the external things, the outer things that have come towards us, maybe through other people, maybe through circumstances. We might paint that as our picture of a trial. We might look at the moments that have caused us to question our faith and our belief as that trial. But whatever we want to consider as that external trial, it's doing something. The suffering that we go through, the trial that we go through, does something. We're going to talk a bit more about what that something is as we go. So that's the external trial. And that's the, that's the things that happen to us. But the inner temptation is that which is happening in us. And I think for us, in a non-persecuted reality, this is the thing where we really wrestle. This is the place in our mind, in our soul, where the real, I think, fight goes on. And in verse 13 through to 15, James says this, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then... After desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. 
So here, John is asserting, sorry, James is asserting that the temptation that we experience is a result of our own desires. And when this desire is conceived, as in when it moves past thought into deed, it births sin. And sin, as it grows in us, brings death. All sin brings death. It's our own desires that kill us. It's our inherited sin nature that afflicts us, that we are torn. We are spirit fighting flesh. And I think it's very easy to diminish this. So bear with me. We're going to, un- we're going to pull it. We're going to unpack it. We're going to kind of work out what the- what's going on here. I think the current cultural, the current Western social narrative, worldview, whatever you want to call it, works on the proposition that all people are essentially good. It works on the proposition that we are all morally good agents. That is, if we have been raised right and that we are, if we're trauma-free, that we would be good, civil, well-mannered people. I was reading a, a study by a, uh, a PhD who uh, leads something that I think very ironically is called the Wisdom Project. And he argues that, and I'll, you can talk to me about the citation later if you want, but he argues that humans are morally good and that violence, selfishness, greed and any other human ills are a result of inequality, social injustice, systems of oppression and trauma. Essentially what he's saying is you're all good but other people or systems doing things to you is what makes you not good. The Bible gives an opposing viewpoint to that. In Romans, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to brush over a few things here, but in Romans 3, 22, the back half of 22, 23, it says, there is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned. And fall short of the glory of God. In Romans 5, in verses 12, and then in 19, it says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, that's Adam, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. Through the disobedience of the one, the many were made sinners. And you might ask, well, what's this got to do with what James is saying? Let me, let me paint a picture. If human wisdom says that we're morally good, that we are essentially all innocent, that all evil that is enacted by us or by others is a result of oppressive systems like the patriarchy or uh, colonialism or trauma, and I'm not diminishing any of those, so don't hear that that's what I'm doing. That's where evil comes from. If we're good, then why do we need God? If I have the moral goodness in me by birth... Why did Jesus die on a cross? And secularism wants to tell you there is no God and that you do not need him. But it diminishes the cross. It diminishes Christ's sacrifice. Human wisdom also says that what you're suffering, it's a result of other people's trauma enacting itself on you and therefore it doesn't have any meaning. It's just a cycle of yuck. But it doesn't mean anything. 
And if we're morally good, it also places the total burden of making things right on us. It makes us solely, totally responsible for fixing things, for providing the help, the justice, the mercy, and the healing that the world needs. It causes us to be the saviors. And that is a burden beyond anything that any of us, even all of us together can bear. The world says that you are good and the burden of saving the oppressed is on you. The Bible says that only Christ is good and the burden of saving the oppressed is on him and he's done it and then he works that out through you. So it's only in Christ's power that we bring justice and mercy and healing and wholeness to a world, to a creation, to a people that groan under the weight of sin. James says that we have evil desires and that these desires cause temptation and sin and that sin leads to death. And that can look like different things for different people. It might be a temptation to cut corners at work. It might be a temptation to rip off your boss, to lie to friends, to exaggerate, to gossip, to lie, to slander, to kill. It doesn't actually matter because there's no scale to sin. All is offensive to God. The Bible tells us that we're made in the image of God, who is good, but that we are fallen image bearers in desperate need of a saviour to make things right, to restore the goodness of humanity. And on the cross, Jesus bore the full weight of this. He bore the full weight of man's sinful nature. He bore the full weight of injustice. He bore, bore the full weight of oppression, of sin, of shame, of the brokenness of humanity. He shed innocent blood because he was good, because he is good. And he shed it to atone for the personal and the collective sins of mankind, the things that are done to us and the things that come out of us. And in his resurrection, he brought you back to life. And Paul says in Ephesians that as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. So that's what James is saying. Temptation leads to sin, sin leads to death. In which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were deserving by nature of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead. It is by grace you have been saved. Now, I've spent a bit of time on this, and I've thought a lot about this, and I don't want you to misunderstand me. <laughs> what James is saying here is that there is trials that happen to us, and there are temptations that come out of us. Both are equally sinful next to a holy God. Now, James is writing to a Christian audience who know this. He writes to people who know they need a saviour. And he's actually writing to people who have accepted 
Christ as their saviour. So when they hear that the temptation in them gives birth to sin and that gives birth to death, they're not surprised. They're like, yeah, it does. But we're made alive in Christ. And he offers hope in both the suffering. He offers hope for that external trial, that thing that's happening to you. And he offers hope for the sin that comes out of us. He has a way forward for both. I want to present this idea that the trials that we face are refining, not defining. The things that happen to you are refining, not defining. And the things that come out of you are refining, not defining. And I think when we know we are a child of God, we can start to see the things that happen to us, not as definitions, not as things that kind of form our identity, but we actually start to get our identity from the Father in our position as a child of God, a saint, set free. So let's go back into James. Verse 2, he says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. So trials are an opportunity for joy. Why? Because as we persevere through trials, our character is tested, our character is refined, and we become more like Christ. The trial and the temptation are not meaningless. They do something. So how do we gain this perspective? How do we look at what's happening to us and how do we look at what's coming out of us and how do we sort of make sense of it all? Well, James says we ask. In verse 5, 6 and 7, he says, If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault. Just pause there for a second. He just said... Well, he says, sorry, after this, he says, temptation comes out of you. Temptation that that causes sin, that causes death. But here he's saying, believe, sorry, that God gives generously to all without finding fault. So even though these things come out of us that are opposed to God, when you are found in Christ, the Father looks at you and sees you as without fault. What you've done doesn't define you. What's happening to you doesn't define you. So ask, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt. Because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. The emphasis here is not on the doubt. The emphasis here is on the faith. Wisdom comes to us to, from God by faith. When we put our faith in God and not in the circumstances of our life that buffet us, like the wind, like the waves, when we lift our eyes above those circumstances, 
that's when we start to receive wisdom because our eyes are fixed on God, not on the things of this world. He says in verse 16, 17 and 18, Do not be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. So he's used that birth idea twice. The first time, He's used it to say the evil stuff within us, the temptations that gives birth to sin, but God chose to give us birth, a new birth, a new life, so that the sin doesn't define us anymore. So let your faith be in the Father who gives good gifts, who, verse 17 says, does not change. Don't look to yourself who, do, who does change. Don't look at the situations around you. Look to the Father who gives you both defining and refining. Look to the Father who gives you new birth by the word of his truth, the Father who loves you. And I think when we start to operate in God's wisdom, we can start to look at situations with his perspective and kind of intersecting this, this passage is there's an example that James gives. He gives an example of a rich man and a poor man. He says in verse 9, believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. That doesn't make sense. We'll get back to that. But the rich should take pride in their humiliation. Also, we'll get back to that. Since they will pass away like a wild flower, for the sun rises with scorching heat, and withers the plant, its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. So what is the high position of the lowly? It's their place in the kingdom. We can boast if we are in low position because of our place in Christ. And when you're in low position and you have nothing to boast about, all you can boast about is Christ because he's done it. You've brought nothing to the table. He's done it all. And what's the humiliation then of the rich? It's that all their wealth, all their possessions, all their stuff, everything they've worked for, everything we strive for, and really, if we're going to apply this text to us, we're the rich every single one of us in this room. Everything we have, our obscene modern Western wealth, is nothing. It's embarrassing compared to the goodness of Christ. It's embarrassing compared to how good Jesus is and how much he has given us. The gospel is this great leveler that raises the lowly and diminishes those who have much. Whether the external trial of poverty or the inner temptation to be proud, we all need Jesus. I'm going to finish in 
verse 12 in the middle of the passage. It says, Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood this test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. So the word crown to us, we probably imagine what Queen Elizabeth or King Charles would be wearing with like a nice big golden headpiece and lots of jewels and things. But this isn't what the audience of the day would have imagined. They would have imagined more like a wreath that you would win in the Olympics, like something that an athlete would achieve, you know, the kind of the laurel wreath. That's what they're picturing. It's, it's, it's reserved for someone who's trained, persevered, run the race and won. And it's unclear what specific prize or reward James has in mind in this passage. But what is clear is that those who do persevere, both through the external trial and through the inner temptation, will be rewarded by the Lord. So your suffering does something. It doesn't define you, it refines you. It makes you more like Christ. Whether you're afflicted by things happening to you, or you're afflicted by your own sinful desires, or most likely a mix of both. These things are refining us. They're purifying our faith. And you can have hope that in the end, it will have achieved more than I think we could possibly imagine. And lastly, if you're here tonight and you don't know this Jesus who raises the lowly, who brings justice to oppression, who brings mercy to those who lack it. This Jesus who rights wrongs, who is coming back, who will wipe away every tear. This Jesus who I believe will make all things right. If you don't know this Jesus, then tonight I pray that you would. That you would see him for who he is the one who deals with the external trial, the things that have happened to you, but also deals with you and says, I love you. I've chosen you. You're my child. Come home. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that you love us. And it can be hard sometimes for us to really understand what that means. Your choice of love towards people who really, even the best of what we have to offer is not that impressive compared to you, even if we think it is. Lord Jesus, you will come back. You are making things right and you are making things new. And we look out on the world and we see injustice and sometimes we cause injustice and we oppress people with our selfishness even though we probably don't realise it. And we look at it and we know that something's wrong and we don't know how to fix it. And Lord, you have, you have fixed it on the cross and in your resurrection and by your Holy Spirit that equips the church to enact your justice, to enact your mercy, to enact your compassion in the world. Lord, I pray first of all that you would help us to 
come to you in all humility and say, yeah, we need you, Lord. That we wouldn't just look at what others are doing and say, yeah, they, that those people, those bad people, they need you. But Lord, that we would recognize that we're all equal before you. No matter where we're from, no matter our age, our gender, our choices, that we're equal before you. And to each of us, you say, I love you. So Lord, help us with our trials. Help us to make sense of them. Help us to see that they are refining us, that they're making us more like you. Help us in our temptation. Help us to stand firm and to persevere. Lord, help us to see you clearly. Holy Spirit, I just pray that as we sing in response to what we've heard, that you would minister to us, that you would bring healing to those that need healing. You would bring peace to those who need peace. You would bring joy to those who need joy. You would allow those who have not felt your love and your embrace to feel that. And Lord, you call us your body. In the word, you say that we're the body of Christ. So Lord, help us as a body to show each other joy and to show each other hope and to show each other love. Father God, thank you that the things we go through mean something that these light and momentary afflictions are preparing us for a weight of glory. Amen. We're going to sing a song now. It's, I think we've done it here before, but it's called Another in the Fire. And really it talks about this idea that no matter what we go through, we're not alone. And it comes kind of from the story in the book of Daniel of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego who they wouldn't bow down to the idols of their age. And as a result, they got thrown in a giant fire, a furnace. And the king who threw them in the furnace was told, hang on a minute, didn't we throw three people in there? There's four. And he looked in and there was the three men, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and another who the Bible says was like a son of God. He's with us in trials. But also we're called to be together in trials, to bear one another's burdens. And so tonight, if you are feeling particularly like you are in a trial, then please don't be alone in it. Ask someone here that you trust to stand with you, to pray with you, to give you a hug, to be Christ's body to you. And also know that Jesus is with you. You don't always feel him or know logically that he's there, but we have faith that he is.
because he tells us that he is. If you're here tonight and you would particularly like prayer, um, we'll have some elders um, over in the corner there as well who'll pray with you if if you would need if you need that. But let's stand together. Let's sing. Let's be encouraged that even though we go through hard things, we're not saying we don't, that Jesus is with us in them. Thanks for listening to the Hills Baptist Podcast. If you'd like to partner with us in developing and equipping passionate disciples who love God, love people and boldly share the gospel, you can do that at hillsbaptist.com forward slash giving. We pray this message has empowered you to live and love more like Jesus. Have an amazing day.